That's good, right? It all looks so blue. Those of you who are here, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 13. Interesting. Okay, did you bring your books? <laughs> yeah, the issue being that we sometimes look at other poems. Aha! Aha! Clever. Um, okay. Um, so did, actually, I wanted to ask a question. The, there were a couple of you who had done the two versions of Casabianca <coughs> before with um, John Plotz, right? Um, I think Ben was one of them too, but he wasn't here. But you did it, Maya? Uh, what did you guys talk about? I mean, I'm just really curious about, you don't remember, that's teaching. Remember. That's fine, that's fine. Um, that's one reason that you're typing up your notes, because you don't remember. So, um, all right, um, did everyone actually read the intimations out? There is a danger in this class, if it is a danger, um, that because we go over things so slowly, um, you may not feel that there's really a need to do the reading beforehand, which makes sense. I'm not there. That's not a weird view that you would have, um, given how little you're assigned to read, at least so far. Why even read that? Um, but uh, when we come to turn the screw in the book of Ephraim, you really will have to do the reading beforehand because um, we're getting closer to the point where we won't be going through things line by line, not that we actually have, um, but you may think we have. Um, so how many people did actually read the intimations of? Uh, okay. And I'm sure the people not here aren't here because they were up late studying it, right? Were you up really late studying the intimations of, Muriel? Totally. Huh? Yeah. totally, yeah. No, 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 that's, it, it will do it to you. You have to hide from reality after reading the intimations of. Not only do you have to hide from reality, you have to hide from truth. Um, okay, so what I want to do, actually, this is why I was hoping you brought your book or your iPad, um, is start out with a totally different poem, which is not different at all. So if you have the Norton, it's page 1223, and it is, um, many of you probably know it, it's Robert Frost's poem, Birches. Many people have read that at some point in their lives. Um, uh, those of you who've read it, do you remember it? Okay, so we're, so um, Danielle remembers it. Uh, she among you who remembers it. Uh, did you like it? I don't love Robert Frost, but I I, I remember um, every once in a while I'll this I don't know I, I didn't mind this poem as much. So okay, I don't uh, love Robert Frost. Okay, not minding. Good. Um, actually, I gave you the wrong page number. Oh. Uh, Twelve thirty-three. Uh, 1223. I know the back says 1223. You're right. Imagine errors in a book. Um, well, I'm glad it wasn't me. Only me. Um, all right, so page 1233. Um, or maybe, maybe every page in the Norton anthology is mispaginated. And that's the one truth in the entire thing, is that it actually is page 1223, but they just mispaginated everything else. Cool, huh? It's like not knowing which is the vehicle and which is the tenor. You have to decide that something is what the other thing is about. But maybe the truth 
the tenor is, it's really page 1223 and 1233, as well as every other page number in the book, is a metaphor for the fact that Burgess is on page 1223. It would get you a kind of stutter step, right? Instead of saying one, two, three, it's one, two, two, trying to stay in this life, but alas, even if you can delay the end for a little bit, you get squirted out towards the future and towards three. And I don't think publishers are that deep. See, that's your, that's your metaphorical opinion. Um, but it may very well be that they're deeper than anyone could even imagine. <laughs> okay, or maybe not. Could be not. Okay, so Birches. Um, so what I want to, um, the reason I want to start with Birches is that um, the Intimations Ode is widely um, regarded, has been widely regarded for um, a very long time um, until uh, some 20th century people decided they were unhappy about this. Um, but widely regarded as probably the single most important poem written in the last two centuries. Um, important in what sense? Important for poets, important for literary history. Um, I, I, I should say in English, uh, not the single most important poem, period. Um, there's plenty of Russian poetry that might be more important. Um, but the single most important, might be, um, but the single most important poem in English, the one with most influence, the one with most power, the one that had the most um, uh, capacity to affect how people thought poetically. Um, and what I mean by, by that is both how poets think when they write poetry, how they think about what poetry is for and what it's about, um, and also how readers think when they read poetry and what they think poetry is for and what it's about. Um, a universal effect? No. Um, a majority effect? P quite possibly. Um, a plurality effect? <coughs> certainly. No poem more. Um, influential in um, the definition or the feeling or the expectations that people bring to poetry in English. No poem more influential than the Intimations Ode. Um, it doesn't, as I say, if it's a majority effect, it would be influential for a majority of people. If it's a plurality effect, it's just saying that um, not for a majority of people, but for more than any other poem. Um, so that's a strong claim to make. It's not my own claim, but it's a claim that I believe. Um, and one way of seeing this, which also is a good way of getting into the Intimations Ode, is by looking at one of the poems that on first glance doesn't look that much like it, but that comes out of it. Um, so let me just give, some of you may know who Harold Bloom is, um, two of you, anyone else? Uh, sort of? Not at all? No, okay. Um, so Harold Bloom has a theory of poetic influence. Um, he's a, a very controversial figure now in his 80s. Um, he has a theory of poetic influence, which I just want to give you one uh, crucial and I think correct um, uh, aspect or facet of. Um, that theory of poetic influence is that to become a poet, the very idea of becoming a poet for anyone except um, 
the first people who kind of got into saying things rhythmically. Um, the very idea of becoming a poet, taking poetry as a vocation, deciding that what you want to be is a poet. If anyone has seen, which I suspect you haven't, but if anyone has seen the great Robert Altman movie, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, um, there's a place where Warren Beatty is, is playing an inarticulate um, Westerner. Um, it's set in the 19th century, and he's trying to build a town. And Mrs. Miller, <coughs> played by Julie Christie, is um, the extremely charismatic and very remote and lost in her own world um, Madame of a brothel. And McCabe is in love with her. And um, do people know who Leonard Cohen is? Um, he has a new album, actually. Um, yeah, it's called Old Songs or something, or Old Ideas. It's a new album called Old Ideas. Um, uh, so if you know uh, the sister, his song, The Sisters of Mercy, or his song, Suzanne, which are like two of his most famous songs, they're the soundtrack for McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Um, at any rate, they're a good soundtrack because um, one thing that happens to McCabe, to McCabe, to Warren Beatty, is that he has this amazing inarticulate speech, um, a kind of I could have been a contender speech, um, in which he says there's poetry in him. Um, he can't, he's not good with words, but there's poetry in him. So that idea that there's poetry in you, um, that makes sense to all of us, right? Anyone who um, feels the urge to write a poem, anyone who feels that there's some um, impulse towards a kind of, we wouldn't say transcendent expressivity, but at least um, uh, otherworldly expressivity, what in this class we've been talking about as fictional worldly, going into the literary rather than staying in this world. There's a great line, we're going to range far afield for just a minute, there's a great line in Kafka's novel, The Castle. How many of you have read it? Um, uh, well, it's probably Kafka's greatest novel, and Kafka is certainly one of the, uh, one of the two or three greatest writers of the 20th century. Um, there's a great line in, have, has, have people read any Kafka? Um, okay, so and you, at least you have a sense of what the Kafka-esque is, which is not actually like Kafka, but you can see why people would get the idea out of Kafka. Um, so in the castle, a land surveyor named Kay um, is called upon to survey the land in a remote and faraway place where, which is dominated by the castle. And he's um, got to, he wants to go see the person who has assigned him this job, um, but he can never get to the castle to meet the person. That's the Kafka-esque um, toil that he's in. Bureaucracy and refusal prevent him from ever getting there. And um, things just go from bad to worse. He's constantly thwarted and, and prevented from getting to the castle. And finally, someone says to him, um, why don't you leave? Why don't you go home? You know, this is completely pointless. Um, why would you stay here? Um, someone of the, someone, someone of, of very great goodwill says that to Kay. And Kay replies, what could have brought me to this desolate land except the desire to stay here. So that idea 
that what brings you to a desolate land isn't that you hope to find gold or, or fulfill your commission or um, get a lot of money for um, hardship in hardship wages for <coughs> surveying the land around the castle. It's an urge to some other place, a place of desolation, where nevertheless you can feel that you belong, that you f can feel that you can stay. Um, if that makes sense to you, um, versions of it are the fantasies of joining a commune, for example, of hitting bottom, of how good it would be to hit bottom and then live a life of a kind of desolate purity. If, if ideas of that make sense to you, one strong version of that idea is the idea to um, be a poet, to have poetry as a vocation, even if you're not good with words, that somehow poetry is nevertheless a place that you can go, that you want to go. That's what McCabe is saying in McCabe in Mrs. Miller when he kind of, of stammers out, I, I, got, I got poetry in me. Um, I, I may not be able to say it, but I got poetry in me. Um, so that idea is not poetry as a kind of um, technical talent. You wouldn't imagine um, a Greek vase maker in, you know, making, let's say, um, attic vases, red period, um, red figure, black figure vases. You can't imagine someone saying, I got vases in me. Huh. I may not be good with my hands or with clay or with kilns, but I got vases in me. Um, so poetry originally was, I have, was making vases. It was being able to have a good memory and to put things together in meter and to tell a good story. But eventually it became internalized. It became something that people felt they wanted to do or to be, um, was, was to be and to do poetry, to feel a poetic vocation. Um, and the point is that you can feel a poetic vocation without um, actually being good as a poet um, in a technical sense, without having any of the technical expertise you might want to have as a poet. Now, if that makes sense, and here I think I'm saying something that's, that's completely obvious, or completely, it's not obvious, it's familiar to us. Um, does that seem weird to anyone, what I've just said? Um, it seems weird to you. No, no, I just have a question, which yeah. is, around when did that transition occur? When do we see more poets kind of with internal skill coming out? Well, Wordsworth. Um, that is to say, one reason the Intimations Ode is so important is that it's essentially um, a milestone in that idea. You can see it before Wordsworth. There's um, a poem uh, that affected him a lot by, by someone who's a generation earlier um, than he was called Ode on the Poetical Character. Um, Ode, I repeat on the poet <coughs> character. Um, Marielle, do you remember who that's by? I'm sorry. Ode on the Poetical Character. We, um, we studied it last year. We? we did. Wait, who? Who we? 18th century poetry. Collins. <coughs> Col Collins. Col yeah, oh. Col oh, well. <laughs> that's all I had to say, right? <laughs> um, um, he also wrote the Ode to Fear. Remember that? Oh. Ah, fear, ah, deadly fear. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, the idea of of 
that's that actually is is a comparison to make because the idea of, of scary literature, gothic literature, is also an idea of literature as somehow being a place where the deepest human um, anxieties and emotions could find um, a place for expression, um, and. Um, at any rate, that idea is essentially an idea that begins with and continues from Romanticism. If you look at earlier poetry, you will very rarely see anyone who says, yes, my vocation is that I'm a poet. Um, I am proud to be a poet. Um, it really matters to me that I'm a poet. Um, but that starts roughly speaking, this is this is simplifying a great deal, but that starts uh, in, in a way that's familiar to us, roughly speaking, around 1798, just about 1798. Um, and um, the, what the Bloomian, what Harold Bloom's idea then, or the one that we're going to look at, is that what makes you want to be a poet, even if you're even if, even if you're not, even if it's not a talent or a skill that you have, what makes you want to be a poet, what makes anyone want to be a poet, skilled or not, even supremely skilled, is the sense of poetry that they get from their reading or hearing of, poetry, of poets. So you read a bunch of really amazing poems, and they seem to you to express um, with great depth feelings that matter to you. And somehow that expression, um, that world of expression, the world thus expressed, that literary world, is a world that you would also like to join or that it would feel like solace to be able to join. You could say the literary world is a desolate place, or at least the poetic world is a desolate place, but it's a place that you might desire to be. Now, is this still seeming somewhat familiar and somewhat intuitive to you? Because this is, this is now saying things that might be surprising put this way, that there's something about literature which is often desolate, where the desolation is nevertheless attractive. Um, and the, that feeling of desolation is the feeling of wanting to write. Um, there's a great poem by Beckett. Um, are any of you in the Shakespeare class? I don't think so, because um, I quoted this the other day in the Shakespeare class. Um, there's a great poem by Beckett, um, which goes, I would like my love to die, and for the rain to be falling on the cemetery and on me, walking the wet streets, mourning the first and last to ever love me. So. There's a, there's a certain clarity in the idea in that poem, which is that somehow um, here's a happy relationship. She loves him. He loves her. She's my love. Um, she's alive. It's all good. And yet somehow there's a poetic feeling, which is the feeling of mourning her, which is also really attractive to him. That we tend to think of mourning as, oh no, why is it like this? But here's a situation, and I think this is a common feeling that Beckett is expressing here, um, that there's something attractive about anticipating mourning her. 
There's something um, about that desolation which has its own attraction. The desolation or the attraction, you could say, of tragedy, of sadness, of sad songs. Um, and this is a sad song about the attractiveness of sad songs. So does that still make sense to people? Does the Beckett poem make sense to people? Um, yeah, Gil. I, I think the poem, I, the poem speaks to me in the sense that I think there's something sort of romantic about mourning for a lover as opposed to mourning somebody else. But on the other hand, when a poem starts out like, you know, I would like for my lover to die, I get the sense that it's something that he likes to fantasize yeah. about, but not something that he wishes would actually come Yes. No, I think that's true. That is that um, were that to come true, um, it, wouldn't it wouldn't be romantic at all. And if he wrote poems after it came true, they would be poems of the most intense um, <coughs> despair and remorse. So what we could say that partly you use the word fantasy, which I avoided a little bit, but only because uh, there's a certain Freudian freight there. Um, the fantasy is not, oh, this is the truth, he really hates her because all love is admixed with hate and we have to understand that. It's not that kind of fantasy. The fantasy is, is rather something like, you know, if she really did die, I would just be distraught and that would really suck and that would be a real world event. Um, but since she's alive, um, thinking about the literary um, experience of her death. I can imagine her dead the way I imagine Cleopatra dead or King Lear dead. That is, that can happen in literature. In real life it doesn't happen that way. When writers lose people that they love, they don't just go around saying, oh, I'm a great poet and this is a good theme. Um, they are as, as um, incoherent and inarticulate as the next person. Um, but there is a certain kind of attraction of desolation that Beckett is simply noting in that poem. Um, it's not a great poem, but it's a very accurate poem. Yeah. I think another aspect of it is that you get the sense that it is a great relationship because you don't mourn someone who you don't really love. Yeah. And so the fact that he would really miss her if he were gone and that he would, he would mourn for her and cry for her and, and be really sad speaks to the fact that she is really beloved to him. Exactly. And then if you think of, I mean, I wasn't going to, I swear I wasn't going to do this, but notice how close that poem is to lullaby, that is that she is um, a mortal child and is going to end up in the grave, and how close it is to cradle song, I must own that I shall miss you when you are grown. Um, that is looking at a person who's there and thinking about how much you'll miss them when they're not there. Um, that's a way of being with people. Um, what poetry will often capture is just that component of the way you can ratchet up the intensity of how you feel about someone by thinking about what it would be like if they were dead. Um, that is, that's something we do all the time if we're not sure whether we love someone. Um, if you're involved in a relationship and you're kind of iffy, do I really love this person or not? As Wittgenstein says, Love is not a feeling. This is a great aphorism of Wittgenstein's. Do people know who he is? Uh, no? Um, sort of. Uh, he's basically two of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century. Um, he wrote one amazing, groundbreaking philosophical book when he was 23, um, and it sort of changed everything. And then he decided over the next 40 years that that book was wrong, um, and he wrote another book 
um, in which he says what's wrong with the first book. And the second book, Philosophical Investigations, is even better than the first book, Tractatus Philosophica, um, Logica Philosophicus. Um, in the later, so people talk about, you will now hear people talking about the early and the later Wittgenstein. In the later Wittgenstein, um, what he's noting is how subtle you have to be to discriminate among things that most people pile together. So people will talk about a feeling of grief and a feeling of pain and a feeling of hunger and a feeling of love. And he says, well, no. Um, we talk about those as all feelings, but they're not like each other. Their, their, their experience isn't remotely like each other. They're, they're not just different colorings of the same outline or different outlines of the same color. Um, so he has a great aphorism, love is not a feeling. Love must be put to the test, pain not. We do not say of pain, that was not a real pain, otherwise it wouldn't have gone so quickly. So the point is we do say that of love, that you can't just look at someone and think, oh, I love them. Um, and have that experience for two or three um, minutes and then say, well, yeah, I love that person for two or three minutes. If it was two or three minutes, it wasn't love. And if, you, if you're not feeling love for a person, if you're not feeling love for a person, if you're involved with someone and you'd rather be bowling one evening, let's say, um, that doesn't prove that it's not love um, because love is not a feeling it has to be put to the test. You can know if you can know that you love someone after years or months, but not after five minutes. But you can know that you're in pain after 10 seconds. Just go to the dentist and you'll know after 10 seconds that you're in pain. Um, so that for Wittgenstein is really important, but that idea of putting love to the test, what he means by that is things go sour and yet you don't break up, yet you decide to um, stay committed. Um, that's one way of putting it to the test. But another everyday way of putting it to the test is to say, do I really love this person? And then what we all do is imagine them dead and suddenly we're filled with grief. And then we're happy about that grief because it proves we do love them. So is this still familiar to people? Um, that, imagine that what Beckett is doing is that. I think that's sort of what Gila was suggesting. Imagine that what Beckett is doing is that. If she were to die, I would be filled with the kind of grief that I'm infusing into this poem. And then we can say, so what a certain kind of poem is, is the infusement of a kind of grief that makes you happy. The great French philosopher Gilles Deleuze says, an indescribable joy always rushes out to us from the great books, no matter what they speak of, even if their subject is grief, despair, horror. So it's the joy of the sad that seems to have something to do with poetic vocation. Um, that's what Beckett is expressing there, is poetic vocation. I would like to be in a situation where I could write a sad poem about my love's death. So instead of the poem being, well, she's dead, 
And the thing that I'm good at is writing poems, whereas another person might be good at making vases. Um, so I'll write a poem about her death because I need to do something. This puts the cart before the horse. I would like her to be dead so I could write a poem about it. And so the poem isn't the effect of great emotion. The poem is itself an attraction to emotion. Hence K in Kafka saying, what could have brought me to this desolate land but the desire to stay here? What else could have brought me here? Um, not, I have to deal with the desolation of this land because I have other fish to fry, but it's the desolation itself that's attractive to me. What is Yeats saying in When You Are Old, except I'm looking forward to the time when you become aware of the sadness that I'm putting into this poem, um, because the sadness of the poem is what I love about it. Do people know this poem, The Circus Animal's Desertion? Um, it's one of the last poems Yeats wrote. The circus animals are all his ideas for poems. Um, here, we're going we're gonna to skip around. Um, even the poems we're not looking at, we're skipping around not to look at them. Um, but hang on to page uh, 1233, assuming that's what it really is. Um, and go for a moment, I'm assuming it's here, yes, go for a moment to page 1207. Yeah, that makes sense. It makes a certain kind of sense. Um, go to page 1207. And um, here is Yeats, possibly, um, probably not, but possibly the last poem he ever wrote. Um, certainly written um, within weeks of his death. Uh, the Circus Animal's Desertion. Um, and I'm just going to go through it quickly, partly because you won't know the poems that he's referring to in this, um, but you'll recognize the famous last line of this poem. Um, but just to see what it is that he says about poetry, about his whole life and career as a poet at the end of his life. How many people have read this poem before? Um, With but, Professor Blotz. Okay. Um, do you remember what he said? No. Yes. Um, well, it was in Irish literature, yeah. so it was more in a in a kind of national context than 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 analyzing the poems itself. But. Yeah, but for but see the thing for Yeats is that Ireland is is the <coughs> is the land of poetry. Um, it's what the Irish revival is. That is what's so great about Ireland is England. They conquered the world. Um, what the Irish do is they um, conquer an imaginative world which so far transcends the real world that England is nothing. Um, that's, what, that's what the Irish literary revival is for Yeats. Um, what Joyce will call um, the language of the law written in the language, I mean, excuse me, the tablets of the law written in the language of the outlaw. Um, so the poem is Yeats. It's a poem about not being able to write poetry. I sought a theme. I sought for it in vain. I sought it daily for six weeks or so. So he's looking to write something. I sought a theme. I sought for it in vain. I sought it daily for six weeks or so. Maybe at last, being but a broken man, I must be satisfied with my heart. Although winter and summer, till old age began, my circus animals were all on show. Those stilted boys, that burnished chariot, lion and woman, and the Lord knows what. So all my life, I was able to write really um, 
showy poetry put my circus animals on display. Showy not in a bad sense, but in a striking sense. But now look at me. What can I do but enumerate old themes? And now he's going to go through a quick catalog of all his poetry. So you won't know what he's referring to, but in a way it doesn't matter. What can I, what can I but enumerate old themes? First, that sea rider ocean led by the nose through three enchanted islands, allegorical dreams. So his first long poem, The Wanderings of Ocean, um, or Ushin is the way he pronounced it earlier in his life, um, is about this figure who is led by the nose through three enchanted islands, allegorical dreams, vain gaiety, vain battle, vain repose. That's what happens to Ushin. Vain gaiety, vain battle, vain repose. Themes of the embittered heart, or so it seems. So if you want to, so it seems like the good way to interpret this long poem by the young Yeats is that he's writing an allegory of the embittered heart, or so it seems. Themes of the embittered heart, or so it seems, that might adorn old songs or courtly shows. But what cared I that set him on to ride? I starved for the bosom of his fairy bride. So what he's saying is, yeah, there was a good political interpretation of that poem. There's a good allegorical interpretation of that poem. And that was why I thought I was writing it. But what really mattered to me was what was actually happening only in the poetic world. What cared I that set him on to ride? I starved for the bosom of his fairy bride in love with this figure who lives only in fairyland, which is to say is utterly unreal. Second in his catalog of previous work. And then a countertruth filled out its play. The Countess Kathleen was the name I gave it. So that's the name of a play that Yeats wrote, The Countess Kathleen. Um, Kathleen Nahulahan being an invented mythological character um, invented by Yeats um, with help from his friend Lady Gregory. And then a countertruth filled out its play. The Countess Kathleen was the name I gave it. She, pity crazed, had given her soul away, but masterful heaven had intervened to save it. I thought my dear, must her own soul destroy, so did fanaticism and hate enslave it. And this brought forth a dream. And soon enough, this dream itself had all my thought and love. So notice, he says, I tried to write a political poem. And I put it in the form of a dream. But it was the dream that I cared about, not what it meant. If you feel that the kind of interpretation that people like us do in English classes, where we say, so what's this really about? No, dig deeper, dig deeper. So it turns out that it's really about um, whatever um, real life thing that has been disguised as poetry. That's an old view of poetry. The poetry is the sugar on the pill of truth or doctrine or observation or philosophical argument. Yeats is saying quite the opposite. You may want to say something true or political or philosophical or whatever, but 
the sugar turns out to be what matters. And the pill itself is only an excuse for eating the sugar of poetry. Um, sometimes the sugar infused with bitters, not, not bad as an analogy or as a metaphor, but the sugar. So that's what he says. And this brought forth a dream. I thought my dear must her own soul destroy. So did fanaticism and hate <coughs> enslave it. And this brought forth a dream. And soon enough, this dream itself had all my thought and love. Third in the catalog comes in the next stanza. And when the fool and blind man stole the bread, Cahulain fought the ungovernable sea. Heart mysteries there. And yet, when all is said, it was the dream itself enchanted me. Um, notice, by the way, that that's the same Irish structure as loves the boy stood on the burning deck. It, it was the dream itself enchanted me. Character isolated by a deed to engross the present and dominate memory. Players and painted stage took all my love and not those things that they were emblems of. So the next time someone says, no, this is just an allegory. You've got to figure out what these things are really about. When Bob Dylan talks about the Joker and the thief, what do they represent? Clearly, the thief is the US government, and the Joker is Vietnam, um, which it isn't. Um, but what Yates is saying is, no. What's really cool is that you can take the US government and Vietnam and turn them into something as utterly interesting as the Joker and the thief. Um, does that make sense? Again, it, you could see it as a question of which is vehicle and which is tenor. And you could say, yeah, metaphor. E metaphor is easy. You look at the vehicle and you figure out what the tenor is. You say, um, to quote, um, did anyone, by the way, look at this be the verse, the um, Larkin poem? You really should. No one did? Really? It's the Philip Larkin poem I mentioned the other day that begin that, that whose title is "This Be the Verse," and whose first line, um, I won't quote for you. Um, but if you read the first line, you would keep reading. Um, that someone figure out what page it's on. This be the verse. Um, so, but to quote that other Larkin line, if you if you take a metaphor, books are a load of crap, um, or any kind of other metaphor. Um, uh, beauty is but a flower which wrinkles will devour. Queens have died, young and fair. Brightness falls from the air. Dust hath closed Helen's eye. What, what page? 650? 1657. Okay. Um, beauty is but a flower which wrinkles will devour. Um, queens, brightness falls from the air. Queens have died, young and fair. Dust hath closed Helen's eye. I am sick, I must die. Imagine that that's not um, a series of metaphors about old age and plague. It's actually from a, from a song called A Litany in Time of Plague. Um, but imagine that it's not a metaphor to really understand this, we have to understand that it's a metaphor and that what brightness falls from the air really means is the sunsets in life. But imagine that Thomas Nash, the writer of that song, really wanted 
to find a place to use the line, brightness falls from the air. That he has this amazing line whose meaning is unclear. Brightness falls from the air. What could be better as a line than that? Seriously, I ask this as a real question, sort of. Is there a better line than brightness falls from the air? No, obviously not. What, you think there is? Yeah, I just can't remember. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, yeah. When the, that goes out with a whisper, I like that one better. All right, okay, that's good. You like it better. All right. <laughs> but still, brightness falls from the air. Um, wouldn't you walk a good city block to get the poem in which that line appeared, brightness falls from the air. And um, so Nash has this amazing line. And then he has to figure out something that the line can apply to. So he does. But it's the line that matters, not that it's a metaphor for, um, let's say, something like cataracts coming to you um, as you get older, so everything kind of becomes comes gloomy and loses its sparkle. Um, no, brightness falls from the air. That's the line. And finding something to peg the line to, that's the work that he's doing. And so what we would say is the vehicle is brightness falls from the air. The tenor is we're getting old. <coughs> But the tenor doesn't matter. It's the vehicle that matters. <coughs> the tenor is just something that you can um, stabilize long enough that the vehicle can be there. Poetry has to be all vehicle or it's nothing. The tenor is just anything that anyone can feel. But if you want to be a poet, it's because you want to be in the world of the vehicle, not the world of the tenor. So that's what Yeats is saying. Um, what cared I that set him on to ride? I star for the bosom of his fairy bride. This brought forth a dream, and soon enough, this dream itself had all my thought and love. Players and painted stage took all my love, and not those things that they were emblems of. Those. He then finishes, those masterful images, because complete, grew in pure mind. But out of what began? That is, what are these the emblems of? Well, they're the emblems of stuff of no interest whatever. A mound of refuse, or the sweepings of a street. Old kettles, old bottles, and a broken can. Old iron, old bones, old rags. That raving slut who keeps the till. Now that my ladder's gone, I must lie down where all the ladders start in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. That's the famous line. But what he's basically saying is poetry is a ladder away from reality, not a representation of reality, although it pretends to be one, not an allegory or emblem or, um, or parable or fable about reality. We get plenty of reality at home. Poetry is something which is so otherworldly that it dissolves or offers us for a while the magnetism of the dissolution of reality. So let's go back to 1233, did we decide it was? Um, and 
just begin looking at birches. If you've read the Intimations Ode, think Intimations Ode here. If you haven't read the Intimations Ode, um, definitely read it for tomorrow. Um, but there's a particular thing that um, I want I want to um, talk about in birches, which I also um, want to suggest happens in the Intimations Ode. And just to finish the the summary of this one point in Harold Bloom. If it's the case that you become a poet because of some poetry that you love, and in particular, to put this in its purest possible form, if it's the case that you become a poet because there was once a line or once a poem that really struck you, for people of my generation who grew up reading Ray Bradbury, something that was really important for us was, do people know who Ray Bradbury is? Um, um, did you read him in school, Dandelion Wine or anything like that? Um, sorry? Fahrenheit, four, yeah, Fahrenheit 451. Um, he has a kind of memoir novel called Dandelion Wine, which has no science fiction in it at all, but he's mainly a science fiction writer. Um, and he has a great story called The Golden Apples of the Sun. Um, great line. Anyone know what it's from? Um, isn't it from The Silver Apples? Yeah, it's Yeats. Yeah, it's Yeats also. So it's it's the end of a poem by Yeats. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly the right response. So he has an epigraph to the book. That is, you open the first page and there's a quotation. Um, you've all read The Great Gatsby? Remember the epigraph to The Great Gatsby? For Zelda as always. No, that's the dedication. Yeah, yeah, it's and wear the gold hat if that will move her, and if I mean wear the high hat if that will move her, and if you can bounce, bounce for her too until she cries. High bouncing gold hatted lover, I must have you. Um, so that's a famous epigraph to the Great Gatsby, ascribed to a poet um, who doesn't exist, but was the pen name that Fitzgerald used when he was at Princeton. Um, a lot of people don't realize that that's actually Fitzgerald's, um, an undergraduate poem of Fitzgerald's that he uses as the epigraph to the great Gatsby. Um, so um, for a lot of people, it was these lines, and pluck till time and times are done, the silver apples of the moon, the golden apples of the sun. So you read those three lines, and you're 12, and you think, yes. And then what do you mean by yes? Well, you try to figure out what you mean by yes by writing poetry. So what Bloom's view is, is that if you become a poet because of this sense of poetry that you get from reading poetry, then what you're going to do is try to write the poem that meant so much to you, or the poems that mean so much to you, but try to write them right because you become aware that somehow you own those poems. Again, we've all had this experience, right? That you own those poems in a way that the writer of those poems couldn't possibly have owned them. The more you find out about Yeats, the more you realize that he had no idea how good those lines were. That he lucked into them. But you're the one who really gets them. This is like playing the air guitar. That is, it's, there's, a, there's a riff or a lick that is just so good. But does Eric Clapton know how good it is? No, in a sense, he's too talented to know how good it is. For him, 
It's not this thing that goes down into the very depth of his capacity. It's a riff that he can play. But when you play the air guitar version of it, man, do you put everything that you have into it. Well, if you're a poet, the way you do that is by writing a poem. You just put everything that you have into writing a poem which is a better version of the poem that meant everything to you already. That's Bloom's idea. That's, that is the central thought that Bloom has. So see Birch's as Frost saying, this is what Wordsworth was trying to say, what meant so much to me when I read the Intimations Ode, but that this is the better version of it. So time is up, but at least we're going to start with Birch's tomorrow. So read both Birch's and the Intimations Ode. I know it's a lot of reading for this class. It may take you 10, 15 minutes, um, but read that for tomorrow. There may be a quiz. Who knows? Yeah.